happy, happy Reformation Day. <laughs> On October 31st, 1517, 504 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door and started this ball that would roll, <laughs> that would topple um, the, the tyranny and the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church and, and recover this great doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's pretty amazing that we're here as Protestants, as a Reformed Church, because of, not, be, not just because of Martin Luther, but because of God working through his servant, Martin Luther, and um, it's pretty amazing to think about. So we celebrate that today on All Hallows Eve, and it's pretty amazing that we get to come here and worship the Lord um, free from um, the laws of man-made religion and get to remember this great doctrine of justification by faith alone and, and so much more. So if you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with our call to worship, and this is Psalm 1, the psalm that we just sang during catechism, and it'll be our call to worship this morning, and you'll notice another theme as we've gone through this series on law and gospel. This, this psalm is this gateway to the book of Psalms, all 150 psalms, and it's this called a Torah psalm, is what many refer to it as, and Psalm 2 being this messianic psalm, and I won't get into all that, but this psalm talks about the one that finds their delight in the law of the Lord, that ultimately be in Christ, but us through him. So I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me with the non-bold. Blessed is the man who not, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. If you want to Remain standing and turn to him. 31 will sing, All Creatures.
our profession this morning. We are taking the Galatians 3.10. Where it reads, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And maybe this isn't the place for this, but since it's such a small group. Uh, from my old tradition, this was taught that the curse of the law was something that took care of Deuteronomy 28, where the curses of sickness and disease and uh, not having wealth and all this, they said that this took care of all that. Well, this is most assuredly not a part of this. The curse that's being talked about here, they're talking about a curse that we can't do the things that need to be done, but Christ can, and he takes that curse for us and from us. If you would all pray this uh, prayer of confession with me. Heavenly Father, you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You are holy, just, and good in all your ways. And yet, in our sin, we have broken your holy law and are justly deserving of wrath and curse. But in the fullness of time, you sent your Son to fulfill demands of the law and redeem your people from its curse. So, with heartfelt sorrow, we repent and turn away from all our offenses. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, produce in us the fruits of holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord.
as Paul does so well, he not only, he not only presents the need, he presents the answer. And this within just a few sentences of where Galatians 3.10 was. In Galatians 3.13, says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you would take upon yourself the very things that we deserve, the wrath that we deserve. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to walk in that redeeming love that you have given us so freely. Father, as other churches have gathered today, even at this same time, Lord, worshiping you, putting you where you belong, on the highest pedestal, above everything else, Lord, that we would tend to worship, Father, that we would tend to idolize. We lift you up above all things because you are worthy. Father, we ask that this day would be yours. You would be with Kendall as he presents your truth. Stir in our hearts. May our hearts be more flesh today, Lord, than they were yesterday. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue with the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, This one is on of the law of God. If you would all read with me, please. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to be verified, justified, or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll be finishing up this morning this little series that we did on the law and the gospel. For the last two weeks we've looked at the law and the gospel and this third week we'll look again at that topic and Two weeks ago, we looked at the law of works, or this covenant of works, this principle that all the way back in the garden, God wrote his law, his moral, perfect law, on the hearts of Adam and Eve, that Adam was this sinless son of God put in the garden to obey God, to follow him, to flourish in the land, and that if he followed God in his will, that he would be blessed with eternal life, and that if he worked and, you know, tilled the land and spread um, the earth with image-bearing sons of God that, that he would be blessed with eternal, unchangeable life. But we also talked about how the fall happened. The serpent came in, tempted Adam and Eve, brought condemnation in their sin on all people, Adam being this federal head that represents all of mankind. And so now, because of the fall, because of this fall of sin, that all are now born under this covenant of works. 
this is the perfect law of God that says, you must do this, you must fulfill the law perfectly, as we read this morning, you must obey all the things written in the book of the law. In order to have to be with God, God cannot dwell with sinners. And so all are born under this law of works, this covenant of works. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago, that the law is this thing that condemns. It's this work that needs to be done in order to receive life. But because of our sin, we can't do that, and so the law only condemns us. And so we needed the second week, which is what we talked about last week, is the law of faith or this covenant of grace. That Christ, as the second Adam, another sinless son of God, is given another covenant of works that he obeys perfectly and gives us the benefits by faith. That he's obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf, as we read this morning, fulfilled the law for us. And that justification, right standing with God, eternal life, is not based on our works, but by faith alone, as we're celebrating today on this Reformation Sunday, and that there's two types of people. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You're either under the covenant of works in Adam or you're in the covenant of grace in Christ. And so we've talked about the law of works, we've talked about the law of faith, and this week we'll talk about the law of of Christ or the law in the hands of Christ. That now that we've been saved by faith alone, not of our own doing, but of the work of Christ alone, what do we do? What do we do? We've been saved by faith alone. Nothing that we do can earn or merit salvation. God has saved us by the work of Christ alone. He's fulfilled the law for us. What do we do now? Does it matter what we do? Does God care about our personal holiness, how we live our lives as Christians? And if he does, what is the standard of that holiness or that righteousness or the, this law? What standard are we going to try to follow as Christians? Do we get to make it up? Is it found in the Old Testament? Is it the ceremonial law? Is it the civil law? Is it the two commandments in the New Testament? What is it? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So, if you want to follow along with me, in Romans chapter 3, we'll read these verses again for the third time, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll study God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. And again, notice this threefold structure even here in these 11 verses. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law of works. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the great promises that you've given us in Christ 
as we remember justification by faith alone, this great doctrine that we cannot merit salvation, that no work of our hands, that all boasting is excluded. There's no work that we can come before you and say, I deserve salvation, I deserve your grace. Nothing that we could do could earn right standing with you. And this morning we remember this great work of God in Christ in saving us from our sins and sending Christ as a propitiation that he might be just and the justifier. And by your spirit this morning, we need your help. We need your grace to help us to see the great truths of your word, to see that we don't overthrow the law because we're saved. We don't go on sinning that grace may abound, but we uphold the law that we seek to follow you in your commandments and laws that you've written on our hearts of flesh. And this morning, would we put our faith ultimately and hope, our assurance, our trust in Christ alone this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So hopefully, as we've gone through these three weeks and we've read these same verses over and over again, I pray that they would be a place that you can go to as a quick summary of the Christian life. And maybe you've even today started to feel the kind of tension that's in these verses. Because it could be sort of confusing if you haven't read this before, right? 19 through 21, or through 20, we see the law as this thing that condemns all people, that every mouth is stopped before the Lord, none is justified by works of the law. But then Paul will go on to say that the law has been fulfilled by Christ, that he saved us, by fulfilling the law on our behalf so that God might be just. God doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. He paid for it with this sacrificial death of his perfect, spotless son, Christ. And Christ has fulfilled the law for his people. And so it could seem as if the law would have no bearing on the Christian life, right? The law was this thing that condemned. Christ has fulfilled the law. And Paul sort of anticipates the next question. <laughs> Do we then overthrow the law? Do we then overthrow the law? So we are under the law in our sin as unbelievers. Christ has fulfilled the law. But now as believers, what is our relationship to the law? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So we're going to look at the first question we're going to answer is, what law are Christians under? How are Christians to receive this law? In what manner? In what relationship do we have to the law? And then how do we use this law as a rule of our life and some implications for that. So first we'll look at this verse 31, Paul's anticipated objection, right? Paul knows what his readers are thinking. Paul, you said the law condemns. You said Jesus fulfilled. Does that mean the law doesn't matter? Does it mean that the law can just be overthrown? Or what he'll say later on in Romans 6 is, shall we sin that grace may abound? If God's going to be gracious and he's going to forgive us of our sins, shouldn't we just sin? Because then there'll be more grace. <laughs> and Paul says, like he does here, by no means. And so what Paul is answering here is, do we overthrow the law? Because we've been saved by faith alone, not by works of the law, do we nullify or make void the law? Or we can say it like this. If justification is by faith alone and not by works of the law, isn't the law pointless? Or at least in the Christian life, isn't it pointless? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. It doesn't matter how we live. Do we get to make up our own law? And Paul will answer emphatically, by no means. Some of the older translations say, God forbid. And he says, on the contrary, we uphold or establish the law. So hopefully you're feeling that tension. You're feeling that tension between the law's condemning power that we talked about a couple weeks ago, and now this idea of the law as something that the Christian is to uphold. And the first question we need to answer is what law? What law is the Christian to uphold? Maybe you haven't thought about that before. Is the Christian to uphold all 613 laws of the Old Testament, right? This is what some would call Messianic Judaism. There's people out there that believe that Christians 
not only need to believe in Christ, but they need to follow all the laws in the Old Testament, including the ceremonial laws, the various sacrifices, the offerings, the feasts, the festivals. Christians need to observe, right, Passover. They need to observe the Feast of Booze and Tabernacles and all these different things. And our confession makes clear that those were a type of Christ. They pointed to the work of Christ, the sacrifices, the offerings, the feast. And so they're fulfilled by him. The book of Hebrews makes this clear that Christians are not bound to keep the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. The sacrifices, they've been fulfilled in Christ. Well, there's another section of the law. So we have the ceremonial law, we have the civil law, which is the laws that govern the people, the, ju the various judicial laws, the penalties, the punishments. Right? If you go back and read the Old Testament, you'll see that people were stoned for idolatry. People were stoned for blasphemy. Do we need to keep those laws as Christians? If someone blasphemes, if they say the, name's Lord in, the, name, the name of the Lord in vain, should we stone them? Should we take them outside the city? Right? Are those laws that Christians need to uphold as civil, moral standards for all nations? Our confession also says that this is not the case, that those expired with the people of Israel, Israel, the theocracy of Israel, that we can use their general equity for um, moral use today, but as a binding covenant civil law, they're no longer binding on God's people. So it's not the ceremonial law, it's not the civil law, what law are we bound to as Christians? What law is Paul talking about here in verse 31? What law are we to uphold? I believe Paul is talking about the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. The first four being our duty toward God, the, sec the last six being our duty to our fellow man. And at this point, you'll get a lot of objections. There's a lot of objections to what I just said. People will say we need to follow the law of love. And to them, that really means whatever they want it to mean. Some people are more specific. They'll point to the two commandments that Jesus gave in the New Testament, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Some will say, I don't need to follow Moses and the Ten Commandments. I need to follow Jesus. And so they'll sort of pit Moses against Jesus, as one pastor said. Or they'll say, I don't need commandments. I need to follow the Spirit. And so they'll pit the commandments of God against the Spirit of God. And all of these arguments and objections have verses that people will go to in the Bible. Maybe you've heard it, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. It's the letter that kills, the Spirit gives life. Maybe you've heard that used before. So all these verses, people have verses that they go to to justify that they're not under, that Christians are not under the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but under a new, different law. And as you go through the New Testament, especially the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that Jesus in no way reduces or, um, you know, reduces the law of God, but in every way he strengthens the law. What does he say? It's not just murder that's wrong, it's anger in your heart. So he elevates the, the sixth commandment, not just to external murder, but to internal hatred of your brother or your neighbor. And he does this with many laws. So Jesus doesn't diminish the law of God, but strengthens its, its power and its, and its weight. So all are bound to the moral law. We talked about that two weeks ago. All image bearers are bound to the moral law. We're to follow the moral law. Sinners, unbelievers, without the Spirit of God, cannot obey, right? That's what Romans 8 says. All those that are in the flesh cannot please God. But Christians are also bound to the moral law. Kendall, I'm confused. It sounds like a contradiction, right? You gotta feel that tension or, or it's not gonna make sense. And this is brought out in that book I read for, referenced a couple weeks ago, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, where he, he talks about these, these three laws, the law of works, the law of faith, and the law in the hands of Christ. And what he says, this question comes up is, so you're saying believe, unbelievers are condemned by the law of God, 
the Ten Commandments, but believers are to follow the law of God, the Ten Commandments. How can those two things be right? Shouldn't they be different in some way? And what um, the author says, Edward Fisher, is he says, the matter is the same, but the form is different. Or in other words, the contents are the same. The same law that condemns unbelievers, the moral law of God, is the same law that the Christian is to follow and obey as a rule of life. But the manner in which that law is delivered to people is different. He'll say it like this. Beware, Christian, not to receive the law at the hand of God apart from Christ or at the hand of Moses, but make sure to receive it at the hands of Christ as the law of Christ. What are we saying? That the moral law of God does not change, but what changes is our relationship to the law. What changes is not the moral law of God, but our relationship to it. And, and the way he said it, be sure that you don't receive the law from the hand of God. On face value, that sounds blasphemous, right? Don't receive the law from the hand of God. But what's he saying? We need a mediator. <laughs> we need someone that can step in between us and God. Because God is holy, we are sinners, and if we receive the law directly from God, we're in big trouble. We need to receive the law from the hand of Christ. That something about the person and work of Christ changes our relationship to the law. How so? Two ways. First, Christ's work. We've talked about this last week. Christ came to fulfill the law. He came to obey it perfectly. Galatians 4.4. Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He earned justification for his people. He took the curse that we deserved in his active and his passive obedience. Christ fulfilled the law. Amen. Reformation Day. Christ fulfilled the law. So that, by nature, changes our relationship to the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. But there's another element that's being hinted at here, is that, and it's hinted even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, what's it say? That one of the benefits of the new covenant that's promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel is not just the forgiveness of our sins, but it's this idea of a new heart. A heart not of stone, but of flesh. And what's it say in Ezekiel and Jeremiah? That God's going to write his law on our hearts. God's going to write his law on our hearts. That there's something that happens in this act of regeneration, God giving us a new heart and giving us his spirit, whereby the law can be written on the believer's heart. That the believer is not under the law as a covenant of works, but as a covenant of grace. That we all know the law cannot save us, right? Even as Christians, the law cannot save us. We can't obey enough, even as Christians, to merit eternal life from God. Only the gospel of Christ can save but what we're saying is that after we have been saved, we actually return to the law. Not as a judge for justification, but as a God. Those are the words of Sam Renahan. The Christian returns to the law, not as a judge, but as a guide, not to earn eternal life, but out of gratitude for the grace that God has given us in the gospel. So this brings us to the final point, the law as a rule of life. And we've talked about it in our catechism every other week. Guilt, grace, gratitude. In guilt, the law exposes our sin. It's actually the standard that we look at and we see, I don't measure up. I haven't loved the Lord with God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as I love myself. But God has fulfilled the law in His grace, in the person and work of Christ. And out of gratitude, the last, the last section of the Catechism is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. How am I to live in light of what God has done in His grace? And as we read this morning in our Confession of Faith, if you want to look there, this is why the Confession is so helpful. 
There's so many topics that are touched on in this idea of law and gospel. We're going to talk about assurance, repentance, all these different things, but this chapter on the law of God is so helpful. It shows us that we're not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by our obedience, because the believer has been saved by faith alone. <laughs> that has to be clear. That has to be stated outright. But then what is our relationship to the law after we have been saved? A couple things, as you look there. It informs us of the will of God. What does God want me to do with my life? What is God's will for my life? Obey his commands and his law and our duty to God and our neighbor. What else does it do? For the believer, the law shows us our sinfulness. It's a mirror that shows us how often we fall short. It's not just an external do's and don'ts, but it's to reveal something in us, not to condemn us ultimately, but to convict us as sinners and in need of grace. As it says in the confession, it shows us the need we have for Christ, for his perfect righteousness, that we're meant to look at our works, and even if we do the right thing, we're meant to see how muddled that is with pride or arrogance, right? We can do the right thing, but we have mixed motives, we can do things for the wrong reason, and we're meant to see the perfection of Christ's obedience as we look at the law, that he did everything, every commandment, perfectly never failing at any point, never doing it for ulterior motives, never doing anything underhandedly or to try to deceive, but perfectly at every point. And someone might say, this idea of law and gospel is contradictory, right? You can have the gospel, you can have justification by faith alone, but the way, Kendall, you're talking about the law as something the Christian needs to follow, that's contradictory, doesn't work. But what we would say is that these uses of the law, the right use of the law, the law in the hands of Christ for the believer is not contrary to the gospel, but it sweetly complies with the gospel. That this work of the Spirit in our hearts writes the law on our hearts, causes us to want to obey, to delight in God's law. As we read this morning, Psalm 1. Delight in God's law, meditate it on it day and night. We won't do that perfectly, but that's what the work of the Spirit in us does. As Paul will go on in Romans to say, he'll say these things, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That God not only justifies his people, counts them as righteous, but sanctifies them, enables them to die to their sin and live unto righteousness. But it's important that we keep going back to this idea that we are die, we're dead to the law as a covenant of works. Paul will go on in Romans 7 saying, you've died to the law. What's he talking about? I love putting these two verses together. Romans 7, Paul says you died to the law. That makes it sound like the law is of no importance. What good could it have as a Christian? What he's saying is you've died to the law as a covenant of works. Because in Galatians 3, what's he say? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's saying, Christ was punished on the cross for my sins. I, and he's obeyed the law perfectly. I've died to the law as this condemning thing that's over me that only condemns. But I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not under the law as a covenant of works, but I'm under the covenant of grace whereby Christ has fulfilled the law for me and all those who believe. So to try to apply this to our lives, a couple things to touch on, because this idea of law and gospel touches every point of our lives. And a couple of the big things it touches on is assurance. That this doctrine of law and gospel is what brings true and lasting assurance to God's people. That's founded not on our works, not on our obedience, but on the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. We don't rest fully and finally on our ability to keep the law, because we're going to fail a lot. I don't know about you, we're going to fail a lot. We're going to fail to keep God's law, but 
we are ultimately looking to Christ. And any work that God produces in us, any obedience, is a fruit, an evidence of God's work in us, not in and of ourselves. So it produces true assurance for God's people. But it also shows us the nature of true repentance. True repentance. That true repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry for what I did. It's hating our sin. It's a hatred and abhorrence of our sin. It's not just saying, I'm sorry about the consequences of my sin, but a hating and abhorring of our sin. Paul will say in, in um, Corinthians that do you not know that those that make a practice of sinning will not inherit the kingdom of God? That faith is never alone. That by the Spirit, God works in us and produces good works in us. That's part of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Not for our justification, but as a fruit and evidence of God's work in us. So, when someone says, I believe in God, I have faith in Christ, but their life is totally contrary to God, living in unrepentant sin, we should pause and we should say, is their confession consistent with their life? And we need to ask that question. And so this idea of the law of God shows us the nature of true repentance that Christians, not perfectly, but should daily seek to repent of their particular sins particularly, and seek to obey the Lord in those ways. So ultimately, we see the true nature of assurance, the true nature of repentance. But as we step back and look at this doctrine of the law and the gospel and the law for the believer, we see the work of the triune God, that the Father has sent his Son to obey the law. The Son has done it. Christ has accomplished redemption. The Spirit indwells believers, writes the law on their heart, leads them in sanctification to obey the law of God, not perfectly, but with greater fervency. And all of us in this room will struggle with sin. We are all struggling with sin right now. The old man clings closely. We all struggle with weakness, whether it's sin in our hearts, sin externally that we struggle with, but we're reminded that God has given us a, a, his law as a rule, as a guide. That the Ten Commandments are not just this external do's and don'ts, but it is a law for the believer to follow because of our gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done. It's not to earn anything from him. It's to be, show our thankfulness for God's grace in saving us by faith alone. And I love how Richard Barcelos sort of rephrases the Ten Commandments. And I think it's helpful as Christians to see them in this kind of new light. The first commandment, thou shalt love the Lord your God, you know, is the sanctity of the true God. That he alone is to be worshipped and trusted alone. Not only that, but we're to flee idolatry. We're to flee superstition. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we should be ready to renounce anything, all things, family, friends, even life itself, then commit the thing that is against God's will, right? They're willing to suffer fire rather than commit idolatry and bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. In the second commandment, we see the sanctity of acceptable worship, that God is to be worshipped in the way he's commanded, that that's a great blessing and benefit that God has given his people. The third commandment, the sanctity of God's name, that honor should be given to God's name, his word, and his works. The fourth commandment, the sanctity of time for God, that six days we are to work, and one day we are to worship and rest. We call this the Lord's day. And that under the new covenant, this has been moved from the sixth day to the first day, I'm sorry, the seventh day to the first day. And you know, it's this day of worship and rest where we come together, we gather to worship with God's people, call praises to God, confess our sins, hear the word, pray the word, all these things. And this idea of resting on today can be kind of hard because some of us have kids, some of us have things to do. 
And so you might say, Kindle, it's not very restful for me, <laughs> right? It's not very restful to get up and do these things. And there's things that we can do, right? You know, we try to prepare on Saturday, get the kids ready. There's things that we can do to prepare our hearts for worship. But ultimately, it's not about this perfect rest that we have on the earth. It's meant to point us toward our heavenly rest in eternity that Christ has entered for us. So those are the, the first four commandments. I could keep going. The sanctity of God-ordained authority. Honor your father and mother, right? We should honor not just our father and mother, but people at our jobs, our, the people that are over us, the government to some extent, pastors and elders, teachers. If we go to school, these should be given the respect that they deserve and God has given them, right? The sanctity of life in the sixth commandment. The sanctity of marriage in the seventh. The sanctity of personal property in the eighth. The sanctity of the truth in the ninth commandment. That lying at all times is wrong. <laughs> that we should preserve the truth, promote the truth. I love what some of the older catechisms say about the ninth commandment. We're to be charitable to our neighbor, unwilling to receive an evil report against them. That's amazing. That basically eliminates gossip. But if someone talks badly about our neighbor, we should be quick to say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's true. We should discourage gossip, discourage slander, and even defend our own good name if needed. We need to stand up for the sanctity of the truth. And in the 10th commandment, we see the sanctity of contentedness, that in all things, in adversity, we should be patient in thankfulness, and that we should be content with all that God has given us and praise Him in all things. So we as believers will not fulfill these laws perfectly. We will not obey them perfectly. But God has given us His Spirit. He's written the law on our hearts, and He's given us His body, the church. These means of grace that we can come together, encourage one another, hear the gospel, be reminded that we're sinners, that we need God's grace, but then also be motivated by the gospel, by God's grace, to obey Him, to sing His praises, to confess with our brothers and our sisters, and to be reminded, as we sang already this morning, of His amazing grace. So, let's pray this morning as we close. Lord, we thank You for this great work of Christ in the gospel. That you don't just count us as righteous, you don't just take away our sins, but by your Spirit, you empower us to be conformed to your image. That you give us strength to die to our sin and to live unto righteousness. And Lord, if we're honest, this is very difficult. As we look at the law, we just see thing after thing that we fail to do. We fail to tell the truth. We fail to be honest. We fail to honor our father and our mothers and those in authority over us. We fail to worship you rightly. We fail to take time to worship you. We fail to be content in all things. And so, Lord, for those things we confess, we admit that we've fallen short. But we pray that you would give us strength and ability by your Spirit to receive the law, not from the hand of Moses as a covenant of works, but from the hand of Christ. That you might give us power and ability to keep it and to be a great witness to the world. To maybe even win other people by our love for your law they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, we are unable to do this by ourselves. Help us by your Spirit. This morning we pray. Amen. And so we come now to the Lord's Supper where we're reminded of God's grace. That as much as we need to look at the law, not only as a way to convict us of our sin, but as a means of as a rule for our life, we're ultimately brought each week to the Lord's Supper where we're reminded that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins, His blood was shed, and that this is to nourish and assure us as Christians that we can't do enough, 
Me and you cannot work hard enough, as one song says. Even if we worked our fingers to the bone, we could not earn right standing with God, but Christ has done it. He's sacrificed himself for us. And so we come confessing our sins, but we also come rejoicing, knowing that Christ has done it, and it is finished in him. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Supper, this meal, that we get to come and partake together as one body, as a church, reminded that we're all sinners, we will all fall short, that we might encourage one another and lift one another up and point one another to the gospel of Christ, that we might be spurred on to love and good works, and that we might be reminded that we ultimately look forward to heaven, where there will be no sin, no mourning, where you will make us perfect, you will resurrect our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells only. Help us this morning to look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb and trust in your precious and very great promises by faith. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. If you just want to form a line, partake of the elements, we'll do that together. Christ's body was broken so that ours might be spared, but he didn't remain dead. He rose again, showing his vindication over sin, over death, that we might have newness of life. So each week we take the bread, we eat, we remember, and we believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. In the same way we take the cup, this cup of the new covenant that not only forgives our sin, but gives us the Spirit of God, the power to obey His law, we're reminded that Christ's blood was spilled to cover our iniquity, our sin, past, present, and future. Amen. If you want to stand now, we will respond to this great work of redemption by singing hymn 214, It Is Well. It really is encouraging to um, be a part of a church that preaches the gospel uh, so clearly each week. It's just super encouraging to me, and uh, it really blesses my soul and nourishes my spirit. Um, the song we're about to sing is, well, <clears throat> well, apart from Christ, 
as we've clearly, clearly heard today, nothing is, nothing can be well apart from Christ. Our soul can't be well, our future, our eternity. So, praise God for the gospel. Let's rejoice in the gospel of Jesus as we sing it as well. So let's 
pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us. May we be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, that in all things we may be content. And I pray this morning that you would use these humble offerings and bless them for the use of your kingdom and gospel in this city and throughout the world. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> 